You're listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. On today's episode of Silicon Valley, we sit down with Tehi Nam and Bob Tinker. Tehi is the co-founder, managing director of Storm Ventures, a Silicon Valley VC firm invested in tech startups all around the world. He's also a two-time author. His second book, Survival to Thrival, Change or Be Change, explores how all people in startups, from the executive team to the CEO and the board, need to change their roles and skills as the company grows. His co-author, Bob Tinker, is a three-time entrepreneur. Most recently, he was the founding CEO of Mobile Iron, which in eight years grew from a three-person team and a whiteboard to over $150 million in annual revenue, more than 12,000 enterprise customers, and an IPO in 2014. On today's episode, we talk about what are the five stages that a company goes through? How does one unlock growth in a company? What is the difference between a venture capitalist and the CEO perspective of the business? This and much more on today's episode. And we have a special gift for our listeners. For those who write a review, we'll put your name in a hat and raffle off an autographed signed copy of Bob and Tehe's book, Survival to Thrival. So don't forget to enter for your chance to win. Okay, now let's start today's show. Enjoy. Welcome to the Silicon Valley Podcast with your host, Sean Flynn, who interviews famous entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, and leaders in tech. Learn their secrets and see tomorrow's world today. Tehi, Bob, thank you for taking the time today to be on Silicon Valley. Sean, thank you. Glad to be here. Looking forward to being part of it. Now, Bob, Tehi, you guys are two time authors. You're just raised your six fun. You guys have this amazing history, this amazing credibility in the Valley. And I know our listeners are going to love to hear your guys' story, but I got to ask, I mean, you've been together 18, 20 years longer than in probably 90% of the marriages in, in the world, or at least California. <laughs> Can you talk a little bit about the history of how you two met, how you started working together? Yeah. So, uh, it's funny you make that joke. Tehi and I joke that we've basically been work married for almost 20 years now. How we first met was back in 2002 uh, on a company called Airspace. And uh, Tehi and I built two companies together where he was the main investor and I was the entrepreneur. In this case, Tehi hired me as one of the first executives into a company called Airspace, which built enterprise Wi-Fi in 2002. We built that company from zero to about $80 million and then sold it for $450 million to Cisco. And then a couple of years later, we started company number two together, a company called Mobile Iron where I was CEO and he was the main investor. And we grew that from zero to 150 million together and took it public. And uh, it's still a public company today. Both our wives joke that Tehi and I have been work married for almost 20 years now. And, you know, thinking back over that time, there are really two stories that, uh, about Bob that I remember the most. And that is at Airspace, Bob had this unenviable task of closing these, at the time we thought were impossible challenge, you know, close these major OEM deals before the company really had, you know, customers, product and all that in place. And um, it, it sort of looked like, uh, you know, when you send out a hunter with just a lone dog by himself or herself to go out and do the impossible, but lo and behold, Bob did it. He closed those deals and that was critical in the company's success. The key was that I probably just didn't know any better. And sometimes a little bit of naivety is a very powerful skill. Yes. Ignorance is bliss. And then the other was, when we were in the early days of Mobile Iron, very early days, and we were 
in the process of founding the company and, and brainstorming with Bob about the idea, I was shocked when Bob basically gave up a large bonus and uh, decided to join the company and founded uh, early on beforehand. And that was critical to the company's success because, you know, otherwise we would have to wait months before getting the company off the ground. And so we were excited to see that happen. Yeah, it's reflecting back to this is, let's see, January of 2008. And uh, I was at Cisco after Cisco bought Airspace. And Tehi and the two co-founders, Suresh and AJ, approached me about joining as CEO. And I just had one of those moments after I learned what Mobile Iron was going to be go do that I just had this, oh, crap, I got to go do that moment. And yes, if I had stayed another six months, more equity would have vested and that's all fine. But sometimes you just look at a situation and say, I got to go do that. So when you just gave that up, what did, I mean, did your wife at the time or girlfriend at the time have an opinion on you just giving up that much equity for this, uh, I don't know. This idea say- that maybe nothing. Yeah. So luckily enough at that point in time, I was single. <laughs> so my P&L was a little simpler in life. And then let's go to the, the history of that company. What's kind of the, the normal journey of a company from idea to, I mean, every phase? So, you know, Tate and I built two companies together and it's interesting. I think we've learned there's some patterns. You know, Airspace was zero to about 80 million when we sold it. Mobile Iron, we grew from zero to 150 million, took it public, and now it's almost 200 million a year. And there's some patterns to building startups. And there's really sort of five phases as we've seen. The first one is just founding. Let's get the idea off the ground and get the team together and get some early capital. The second one is the time that it's called product market fit, which is searching for that intersection between your product value and finding 5, 10, 15 customers that'll give you money. And that's where Silicon Valley really shines in terms of helping find product market fit of great products and great ideas. But what's interesting is then there's a gap. And this is where I think we've seen a lot of companies sort of fall in the ditch which is something we call go-to-market fit, which is how do you really unlock growth? Because Silicon Valley is very good at helping companies build products, but I don't think they're as good at helping companies build go-to-market. Go-to-market fit is the third phase. And then once you've figured out that repeatable selling model, it's really all about becoming a category leader, accelerating growth, and then becoming a sustainable industry leader. And those five phases take a company from zero, where you have no product, no idea, no team, and no capital, to hundreds of millions of dollars of revenue where you're a leader in an industry and an enormously valuable company. It's incredibly hard to pull that off, but if you do it, it's a spectacular accomplishment and creates an enormous amount of value. Okay. So you mentioned the five stages. You have to go into more depth on each of those stages. Well, you know, in many ways, it's funny to just try and summarize all the blood, sweat, tears, ups, downs, joy, pain, of building a company into sort of five phases. It feels into like a McKinsey presentation or something like that. It's, <laughs> it definitely does not feel like that when you're in the middle of it. And frankly, as an entrepreneur, sort of overly simplistic one-liners end up not being that helpful. So yeah, I'm glad you asked that question because I think you know for the audience, that's actually the right thing to perhaps drill into. I think so unpacking a little bit, maybe we'll sort of drill in particularly on product market fit and something we call go-to-market fit. and you know, product market fit is something that if you listen to other entrepreneurial podcasts and the venture capital community, it's something I think we have pretty well dialed in, which is how do you iterate with customers on your product idea? How do you find that value proposition? How do you find teaching customers that are willing to give you feedback? And at Mobile Iron in the early days, we spent six months 
talking to customers before we wrote a single line of code or raised a dollar of venture capital. And that was so we could, rather than be sort of this company that's a technology in search of a problem, we really wanted to understand the problem and the customers and say, then what do we need to go build to solve that? And I think you know, that was one of the core lessons for Mobile Iron in the beginning is start with your customers and work backwards. And when you do that, it makes the path the product market fit to find those first five or 10 paying customers that are willing to give you money and say good things about your product. It makes that path much more doable. But then we learned something, I think, the hard way, which is that there are a lot of companies in Silicon Valley and venture-backed companies that get the product market fit, but then never unlock growth. And it's maddening for the entrepreneurs, for the investors, super frustrating. The founder could figure out how to win five customers, 10 customers, but they've never been able to find repeatability. Growth doesn't happen. Cash burn goes up. Everybody gets freaked out. And the reality is, I think one of our key lessons that we learned is that there's a missing link between finding product market fit and unlocking growth. And we call that go to market fit. And to give you an example for this at Mobile Iron, in the very beginning, we kind of ham and egged our way to 20 customers. And I think we could claim product market fit. And that was terrific. You know, but what we figured out was we found a problem with urgency and we figured out a repeatable go-to-market playbook for how you find and win customers over and over and over and over. Hire a new salesperson, they do this. And the funny thing about this is as a first-time CEO, I made a huge mistake in the beginning, which is that I sort of thought having a repeatable go-to-market playbook was like, we just need a good PowerPoint pitch. And a lot of product-centric CEOs, me included, that's how you sort of translate building repeatable go-to-markets. Oh, I just need a better PowerPoint pitch. That's not it. It's step one, step two, step three, step four, step five for how you take a customer from the first time you met them to when they decide to buy your product and you win. And being able to nail that down and figure out that repeatable recipe is what I found at Mobile Iron to be the missing link between product market fit and unlocking growth. And just to give you a sense for sort of the magnitude of that, we went from having 20 customers to then winning 20 new customers a quarter, to 50 new customers a quarter, to 150 new customers a quarter, to 500 new customers a quarter, which in enterprise software is nuts. But once you figure out that repeatable go-to-market recipe on a problem with some urgency, magic happens. And that's really when you can unlock growth and accelerate to become a category leader. And uh, all hell breaks loose inside the company. Because now you go from this little company just trying not to die to like, oh crap, how do we win? And you go from stingy frugality to calculated recklessness. The CEO has to change. The leadership team has to change how they do their jobs. Like Everything changes in the company. And if you do that correctly, you can actually earn the right to become a category leader and industry leader. That's a rare and spectacular thing when it happens. So I want to go back to this, uh, what Bob mentions about the go-to-market playbook, because obviously it was so critical at Mobile Iron that, uh, you know, we wanted to replicate across our other portfolio companies. And in doing so, we found that uh, companies were very good at creating it, except they would always lack one thing, which they said wasn't that uh, as important, and that's knowing what their exact wow is. Yeah. And so I thought what would be great, Bob, is you can share is uh, what was the wow at Mobile Iron and the early days of the playbook and why it had such a, an important impact on conversion? Yeah, this wow concept is a really powerful one, which is, you know, any founder out there or early salesperson or any early entrepreneur in any company, 
is going to go meet with customers. And you talk about what you do. And you talk about this, you talk about that. And then every once in a while, there's something you say or show where you can see like the customer's body language change. And they kind of sit up in their chair and they lean into the table and they're like, tell me more. That's a clue. A wow is something about your product, your business, whatever it is that gets customers interested to spend more time with you. And in order to build that repeatable go-to-market playbook, you have to find the wows. And watch for those things where the customers change their body language. Or they may do is they may like invite a colleague. colleague That's a great example. You know, or they say, I got to try it. Or I want to show it to my boss. But there is, yeah, the change in customer behavior. And the interesting thing about finding the wow is that what I learned the hard way is I was sort of a product-centric founder and product-centric founders you sort of think you know what the wow is going to be because obviously it's whatever you work the hardest on, most proud of in your product. The reality is I don't get to decide the wow. The customers get to decide the wow. And for us, what we found interestingly was what we thought the wow was going to be wasn't the wow. Turned out, you know, rewind back to 2008, Mobile Iron built mobile security for early mobile devices. In 2008, the world was BlackBerry. The world was Symbian. And the world was Windows Phone. We can all laugh about that now, but that's what the world looked like. And there was this new little thing in the world called the iPhone. And people were starting to bring it to work. And they were using it, invented this new feature called Selective Wipe. And it had never been done before. Customers weren't really using Bring Your Own Device at the time yet. But we showed them this capability to basically remove your work content, but leave your personal stuff. And people were like, wow, show me more. We had this second capability, which we built called an enterprise app store, which we sort of think about everybody knows the app store now that Apple has and Google has one. But we built the very first private app store for enterprises. Anything at this time is no customers had any apps. Yet we would show this enterprise app store and customers would go, wow. And they'd want to spend more time with us. And finding whatever those one or two things about what you do that causes customers to lean in, want to learn a he's point, invite a colleague or want to go do a POC. You got to figure out what those things are. And one of the classic mistakes I made was as sort of the part of the team who was building the first product, you sort of think you know what the answer is going to be. And often it's actually not. It's something else because the customer is the one that gets to decide the wow. And the wow is absolutely critical to building that repeatable go-to-market playbook. Is the customer wow, is that what unlocks the growth right there? Or what does unlock the growth in a company? So the first thing in unlocking growth for a startup is just finding an urgent problem, right? Because if the answer to the question, 12 months, growth is going to be slow. So number one is urgency. Number one gives you when you address an urgent problem or urgent pain is you get a lot of leads. Because then customers start showing up saying, I would like to learn more. I would like to try your product. And then the second key thing is building that repeatable playbook. And I know I, I'll use that a couple of times, but you know, as a founding product CEO, like I said, I mistakenly thought a go-to-market playbook, again, was just like a good pit. Figuring out that journey for what is step one for engaging with a customer, step two, step three, step four, really nailing that down like, is key to unlocking growth. Wait, so Bob, you talked about the customer's wow. Now, is that what happens when you're able to unlock growth or I mean, what happens? How does one unlock growth in a company? So the wow is not the one thing that needs to unlock growth, but it's an important part. 
you know, the key thing to unlock growth is again, sort of solving that missing link or that gap between winning your first 20 customers and how do you build a repeatable recipe to find and win customers over and over and over and over again. Number one is you need to have an urgent pain that you're solving. If there's customers just going to say, I'll wait six months, I'll wait 12 months. It's really hard to unlock growth when you have urgency, because then you've got inbound leads, you've got more opportunities, you can then go after them. And if you then have a repeatable playbook, which includes your wow, but then also the step one, step two, step three, as soon as you link all of those things together, you start to have your repeatable recipe. So if you hire more salespeople or invest more in marketing or go talk to more customers, the flywheel of growth starts to happen. And when you find that recipe and achieve go-to-market fit, it's magic. Like I remember when we got it figured out at Mobile Iron, we went from winning you know, 10 or 20 customers a quarter to 50, 100, and 500. It was crazy. But basically the effect is if you hire a new salesperson, go spend more money on marketing, people know what to do in order to find and win customers. And that is what unlocks growth. You know, a common question that comes up is, especially for people that haven't worked in a, a hyper growth company or in a company that's unlocked growth before is what does go-to-market fit feel like? And one metaphor that conveys is the difference of going from paddling to surfing. <laughs> you know, when you paddle, you're burning a huge amount of energy to go a short distance. You know, in other words, small growth or low growth efficiency, whereas if you're surfing, you have the wave that's carrying you. That's a great metaphor because if you think about the exercise of catching a wave in surfing, you have to have built a surfboard, so you got a good surfboard, but you then have to paddle to start to pick up a little bit of momentum, and then you have to pick the right point on the wave that starts to push you and then catch it and go. Like there's a great metaphor in there that it, you can't just be sitting there still in the water and expect to catch a wave. Like you got to already be moving and then magic happens. Just remember how, how much effort it was to start the paddling. But <laughs> if you got that wave out of nowhere, you just feel this push from behind you and takes you all the way to shore. So, so that momentum from you, know, you, you put the initial, I guess, fire in and then just you just said the exact right word, which is momentum. When you say, what does go-to-market fit feel like? Momentum. All of a sudden, things start to move. So I got to ask though, so the company's moving so fast. You're hitting all these stages that was just talked about. When you're hitting these stages, is it the same people at the company at each stage? I mean, the same VP of sales, the same CEO. How do people adapt when you're going from a company of five people to a company of a thousand? That is a great question. And yeah, Tegi and I have been through this together twice. And you know, he's obviously as an investor, worked with a lot more companies than I have. Sort of share that through my lens of having been a CEO, taking a company from three people on a whiteboard to almost a thousand people. And the thing I learned is that as the company changes, your job changes. And therefore you have to change yourself or be changed, actually. And that's the title of our book we just released, Change or Be Changed. And if you look back on my time as CEO at Mobile Iron, I, in effect, had three really different CEO jobs. My title didn't change. It's not like somebody woke up one day and said, hey, Bob, your job is different now. Kind of sneaks up on you. Job number one in the early days was more like sort of Captain America or Wonder Woman and the platoon. It's you and the platoon in the woods, throwing punches, getting punched, digging ditches and into trees. It's a blast. But then you get to sort of 50, 60 people, and now you have to hire a leadership team of great executives. And it's no longer about sort of Captain America, Wonder Woman. It's like the Avengers. 
where you're like Captain America, Wonder Woman, and the Avengers, and you need to hire a band of superheroes, each of whom has a special superpower that's like better than yours. A marketing superhero, product superhero, sales superhero, port superhero, engineering superhero. And when you do that, you have to let go. And what's the first thing a grade A superhero is going to do when they join your team is they're going to look at all the stuff you've built so far and be like, that's terrible. I can do better. And so it creates this massive sense of insecurity where all of a sudden you're hiring good people and they're basically calling your baby ugly. But that's exactly the point of why you bring people like that. When we got to about 450 people, my job changed again. And the analogy here to continue with the superhero analogies is more like Professor Xavier in the X-Men, where you're almost more like the dean of a university, where your professors are your warriors bringing up the next generation. You have to do a lot fewer things, but for a lot more people, and repeat yourself over and over and over and over and over again, which drove me absolutely nuts. So, you know, I went really different CEO jobs, all in the same company. And the hardest thing for me, interestingly, was not learning what the next job was. And I think we spend so much time talking about learning. I think that's part of the equation. I think actually the harder part for me and for most leaders and companies that are going through these fast growth scenarios is unlearn what made you successful before. Because the things that actually helped me be a successful CEO when we were zero to 50 people, many of those things actually get in the way when you're trying to grow a company from 50 to 250. And the things that make you successful at 50 to 250 affect you and get in your way and growing at the next stage. So for me, the hard lesson there was it was less about learning what the next role was. And it was much more about unlearning what used to work and wasn't going to work at the next stage. And I think it goes back to the old adage, what gets you from A to B is not necessarily what's going to get you from B to C. And that applies to the CEO, applies to every executive on the team. Company changes, your job changes. So therefore, I had to change and we had to change. And sometimes people can make those adjustments. They can adapt, they can unlearn, they can really deliver on what the company needs at the next role. Or sometimes the answer is not. And in that case, the right answer is change the people and bring in new leaders. Or in some cases, you know, change yourself and take yourself out. You know, those are the big hard decisions as a leader and as a CEO and as executives in the team that because at the end of the day, it's about what's the right thing for the company. Just adding to what Bob was saying about uh, the three different CEO profiles, you know, the application of that will be to something as like, how does a CEO control the company's operations and manage and all that? The Captain America, Wonder Woman a profile would be managing every task. So it's like a, a super project manager and is a great micromanager. At the next stage, when you're dealing with the Avengers, instead of being uh, managing by all the tasks, you want to control through goals and metrics. And so you're empowering executives, but at the same time, holding them accountable with the key metrics and goals. And then as the company gets even bigger, and, the, and the Bob was saying about Professor Xavier and the Dean University, the way that a CEO would really establish control would be through vision and culture. Now you had mentioned a lot of unlearning right there. How does one kind of unlearn? Did you have a mentor or a coach to teach you to unlearn and then taught you the next steps? Or was it just kind of an introspective sit and think? what needs to be done kind of lesson kind of development. Unlearning is counterintuitive 
the number one ingredient for unlearning is actually self-awareness, which is developing some self-awareness about what's working and candidly what's not working or what's not working anymore. And for me, the types of things that helped with unlearning was feedback from my team, right? If there are things that the company needed or the team needed from me at the next stage that they weren't getting, they'll tell you, listen to your team. And you start to get that feedback. And if you take it seriously, it gives you some clues about places where you may need to unlearn. The second thing was the best mentors were people that were sort of three or four or five years ahead of me, not 10 or 20 or 30 years ahead of me. It was people that were sort of more recent enough where I think their experience felt a little more relevant, a little more immediate to me. And the third thing that helped me with unlearning And the trick on that is there are a lot of mediocre executive coaches out there. My experience on this one was that I had a very good executive coach that really kind of got in my head. And it was a deeply uncomfortable experience, actually, because in some levels, unlearning, because you actually have to let go of the things that actually got you where you are and the things that you're comfortable with and the things that you're good at and got you where you are. And you have to actually stop doing something else. It's inherently a very uncomfortable experience very insecurity generating experience. But on the other side of it, it's a really powerful personal and professional growth experience. And, you know, those three things of self-awareness, getting the feedback from your team, finding a mentor and a coach, all those things add up to give you the signals and the information and the tools to be able to figure out how to unlearn. And the punchline is it's really up to that individual. It's a very personal decision that you have to be willing to growth journey and say, that's something I want to do either professionally or personally. And when you do, you get to the other side and it's, uh, it's a lot of fun. And, you know, another part of to help people unlearn and also transcend in their careers is really understanding how their role and their job's going to change. And what we found is, is that uh, they're obviously experienced investors, executives who've gone through this and can personally share their journeys and be their mentors, but it's a relatively small number. And so that's actually one of the reasons why Bob and I wrote the book is that we couldn't find uh, other resources that people around the world can go and just read to understand how and why their job's going to change. Because only by doing that does you get the motivation to go through this very uncomfortable process of unlearning. Yeah, the, uh, the three steps that we've seen are one is understand what your job looks like at the next stage. So anticipate it. Two is go through the pain and insecurity of unlearning what used to work for you that you need to let go of. And three is then learn what you need to do to be able to be successful at the next stage. And that process repeats itself over and over again as the company. And what's interesting is the very things I went through at a certain stage in the company, fast forward 18 months. My team was now going through their own personal version of that because now the sales team was growing to the scale where the VP of sales had to go through his own or her own version of that. And so this cycle of unlearning and learning happens over and over and over again over the growth of a company and the evolution of a leadership team. I really want to ask a couple of questions about your guys' fund, your investment, but I I still, there's so much more I still want to learn about this. I, I have a question about the unlearn and learn. Now, does this also happen for the investors of the company or the board for the company where they have to learn, unlearn kind of their role with the company or, or what's going on? Oh, that is a great question. And uh, unlearning applies to everybody in the company. It applies to the CEO. It then applies to the leadership team. It then applies to every employee in the company. 
and it definitely applies to the board. Tehi, you want to sort of take it oh, from there? A- on? Absolutely. You know, the company in the early stages, many times the board member feels like a member of the team. You know, you're helping solve specific problems, you know, let's say find go-to-market fit, help give advice on product market fit and so forth. But then as the, the company grows, and especially as you go from survival to thrival, doing that kind of involvement actually will slow the company down. It's a 24-7 type role. And as a board member, you are on the other boards. You're not a full-time employee of the company. And so that kind of involvement is uh, counterproductive. And the, uh, as a board member, it, what you need to do is sort of step back and take a longer view of the company and in terms of uh, providing the right guidance. The, uh, there's a great metaphor that one of our board members at Mobile Iron used. He had a motorcycle analogy, which is that you know, when you're first starting on a motorcycle, and this is sort of the board's role, you're kind of looking at the ground and the potholes like right in front of the motorcycle when you're getting going. And then you need to change your visual horizon as the motorcycle starts to accelerate and look out sort of maybe a couple hundred yards, just sort of anticipating traffic, navigating around. And once the motorcycle starts going really fast, your eyes are more on the horizon. So I think shifting a visual horizon ends up being sort of the biggest unlearning exercise for the board because they have to then stop focusing on the problems they used to focus on and focus on the next set of things that are going to be important for them. I love that metaphor, the, the motorcycle and horizon. I'm thinking right now about a company, you know, when they first start off, they, they plan just literally the next few days, the next week. You're just trying not to fall into the pothole. Exactly. Yeah. And then as, you know, it's a big corporation, they have their one-year, two-year plans and everything's laid out. So I love how visual that is. Now to go back or to start, I got to ask you a little bit about six funds successful. How do you go about finding potential growth companies to look at? I mean, I'm guessing everyone else is trying to get that same, same few ones out there. Right. You know, this whole process of uh, finding companies has really changed in the last five years. It used to be that uh, the primary companies were here in Silicon Valley, and the, the way of sourcing deals was through your network or through referrals. What we're seeing, though, especially with the cloud, is, is that uh, great companies can emerge from anywhere around the world and become very successful in the United States. We're seeing great success with like our European investments. And so the way to source deals has changed where thought leadership and building a brand becomes uh, really important, but especially thought leadership, you know, the ability to sort of help people, even if you're not there physically. Yeah, I look at the choice as a former entrepreneur for how you choose to work with as an investor. Everybody's money is green, or I guess depending on what country you're in. You know, it's really about the people, the thought leadership, sort of the value that gets added along with the investors. You know, and I, you know, as an entrepreneur, I worked with Storm Ventures twice. And the reason was that I could learn from him. As an entrepreneur, you want to be building a bench of investors that are adding value beyond their money, whether it's helping you with recruiting, helping you with the leadership team, helping you with big decisions, helping you with advice. And, you know, from the point of view of an entrepreneur, the things I sort of discovered by accident is that when you think about building your board over time of your different investors, you want each one of your board members to play a position. If you think about your management team, like I had a head of sales, I had a head of marketing, I had a head of people, and everybody played a position. Many ways, over time, as you start to build your board of investors, you want 
each one of you also play a position. You don't want to have a bunch of board members who are all product geniuses and nobody knows anything else. And so he's point about thought leadership, that if you think about you know, brand building for venture capital firms and generating leads and finding great companies, you know, it's going to be about the value they bring to the table sort of beyond the money. And I think that comes exactly to thought leadership. We're going to end part one of this two-part episode right here. So don't forget to listen to next week and write a review, take a picture, and email me at sean at the com or find me on social media for your chance to win a signed autographed copy of Tehi and Bob Tinker's newest book. And stay tuned for next week where we talk about what should entrepreneurs look for when deciding in what VC to work with, what would be considered a normal fund structure, and has this changed over the years, and much, much more. Stay tuned for next week's episode on the Silicon Valley Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. To access our resources, visit us at thesiliconvalleypodcast.com and follow our host on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at Sean Flynn SV. This show is for entertainment purposes only and is licensed by the Investors Podcast Network. Before making any decisions, consult a professional.